quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chastley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Impeachment imminent again. Democrats prepare new measures to remove President Trump. Social shutdown parlor, a U.S. platform favored by conservatives, is taken offline and donations denied. Corporate America cuts funding to Republicans who refute Biden's election win. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. It is great to be back with you. So much to discuss this Monday as we track the political and business fallout from last week's devastating attack on the U.S. Capitol. Even as America's COVID emergency deepens, it is a testing time for the United States to be sure. And yet global investors remain confident both in America's resilience and the strength of its economic recovery, with Wall Street ending last week at all-time highs. We're looking, I have to say, though, at some consolidation this morning. It makes sense in light of the near 2% rally already seen this year for the S&P 500. President-elect Biden set to unveil his plans for more spending later this week. Late last night, he tweeted, we need $2,000 stimulus checks. I have to say that's welcome news all round. After Friday's weak jobs report, 140,000 jobs lost net last month. The first negative month, in fact, since April of last year as COVID restrictions bite. And it's not just the United States. Those COVID fears are front and centre across Europe and Asia too. UK officials warning that the country has entered the worst phase of the COVID crisis yet. The number of people heading out to shop fell by more than 25% last week as new lockdowns took effect. It's going to be a huge hit once again to industry and the economy. Take a look at Asia too, mostly lower again. Malaysia, the latest country to impose fresh lockdowns. Japan also looking to extend its state of emergency, grim times in the COVID crisis, short-term turbulent political times in the United States. Lots to get to in our drivers. And we begin with the stunning situation in Washington this hour, where Donald Trump could become the first U.S. president in history to be impeached twice. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi pressuring the Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove President Trump or have him face a Senate impeachment trial after Joe Biden's first 100 days in office. Sunan Safati has all the details. Well, sadly, the person who's running the executive branch is a deranged, unhinged, dangerous president of the United States. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi insisting President Trump be removed from office in the final days of his administration. Only a number of days until uh, we can be protected from him. Uh, But he has done something so serious 
uh, that there should be prosecution against him. Pelosi will push a resolution today calling on Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment. In a letter to her Democratic colleagues, Pelosi says if Pence and the cabinet do not enact the 25th Amendment within 24 hours, the House will move ahead with impeachment. Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer reached out to Pence on this matter. We were kept on the line for 20 minutes. He was going to be here in a minute, a minute, a minute. Well, he never did. I was at home, so I was running the dishwasher, putting my clothes in the laundry. We're still waiting for him to return the call. One source close to the vice president tells CNN that Pence has not ruled out invoking the 25th Amendment, but his team has expressed concern that Trump could take some rash actions harming the country if the cabinet proceeds. We're all guessing until he tells us what his intentions are. I think that a lot of people at the White House that are in this administration have noticeably noticed a real difference in the president's behavior, even worse than it was. Three Democratic congressmen have already drafted one article of impeachment charging Trump with incitement of insurrection. One of the issues that I have right now, whether it's the 25th Amendment, whether it's impeachment right now, is further dividing the country and pouring gasoline on a fire. And I worry about that because the impeachment articles, if it passes with a simple majority in the House, it needs two thirds in the Senate. I don't know that there's an appetite for it there. Congressman Jim Clyburn has floated the idea of waiting to send any articles of impeachment to the Senate until after President-elect Joe Biden completes his first 100 days in office. Let's give President-elect Biden uh, the 100 days he needs to get his agenda off uh, and running, and maybe we'll send uh, the articles uh, sometimes after that. This as two Republican senators have called on the president to resign. I think the president did commit impeachable offenses. Uh, there's uh, little doubt in my mind about that. But certainly he could resign and that would be a very good outcome. Let's talk this through. Joe Johns is in Washington, D.C. for us. Joe, great to have you with us. I want to hone in on what was mentioned in that piece, and I think it was very important. What action do you take here in response to what we saw last week that doesn't further divide the nation and divide voters. And that's why Donald Trump has been so powerful. He still seems to have a strong base. What do we expect from from the House in terms of an impeachment vote this week? And talk to me about the importance of waiting perhaps 100 days to take those articles of impeachment onto the Senate. Right. There's a big appetite up on Capitol Hill for accountability at this stage after what happened up on Capitol Hill on January 6th. And I can tell you from talking to people on the Hill about the thinking here, they're trying to balance between concerns over disrupting, if you will, the first 100 days of Joe Biden and also trying to establish some kind of accountability for Donald Trump. One of the big things that people are concerned about on the Hill, according to my reporting, is they would like more than anything to push this through in a way so that Donald Trump could not run for office again in four years or what have you. So that's the point of going through with the impeachment process as quickly as possible and then perhaps waiting the first 100 days or someone somewhere down into the Biden administration before actually holding a trial. It's not unprecedented. It has been done before, at least with a judge or even two uh, who have been impeached. 
But what people on Capitol Hill are saying on the Democratic side is that they would like to make sure that the president doesn't run for office again after he leaves office this time, given what happened up on Capitol Hill. And this is such an important point, Joe. This is not about removing or impeaching a president for the next, what, nine days. This is about preventing him ever taking office again, particularly if he has hopes to run in in 2024. What's looking most likely as a result? We've got the 25th Amendment where Mike Pence would say, look, you know, the cabinet and I don't believe he's fit for office anymore. We've got a potential resignation of the president, which I don't think anyone believes will happen. This impeachment vote, also a censure vote. What's most probable? Well, at this stage, you're right. It doesn't seem probable at all that Mike Pence will move forward with trying to assemble the votes in the cabinet of the administration in order to strip the powers of the presidency from Donald Trump. So doesn't sound like that's going to happen. It's been made pretty clear to us here at the White House from our reporting that the president is not going to resign. But I can tell you there does definitely seem to be a strong motive and will, if you will, on on the Hill to uh, go through with an impeachment vote, because at the very least, it is understood that Donald Trump's administration will be stained uh, with the notion of him being the first president in the history of the country to have been impeached twice. Many firsts in this administration, Joe. Thank you so much uh, for that. Joe Johns. All right, the plugs being pulled on President Trump's social media megaphones after the president was banned on Twitter and Facebook. The conservative censorship-free app Parler is now also off the air. CNN chief media correspondent Brian Stelter joins us now. And just to be clear, Brian, great to have you with us. It was other big tech companies that effectively pulled the plug on Parler, at least in the short term here. Do we see this as the big tech companies finally taking ownership and some degree of responsibility for the democratic devastation that they've helped fuel? Yes, I think that's right. Uh, This is, of course, uh, very belated. Uh, I don't even want to say better late than never in this situation. But these technology companies recognize uh, that they are playing a key role in the radicalization process. Some Americans radicalizing online in ways that uh, U.S. officials actually compare to how Islamic militants have been radicalized by social platforms in prior years. Uh, There were conversations years ago about Twitter and Facebook taking action in those cases involving ISIS. Well, honestly, now these technology companies are looking inward, thinking about what's happening in the United States, and they don't want any more blood on their hands. Uh, It is as simple and as disturbing as that. Uh, It's not just President Trump, although Trump is part of this. Banning Trump, of course, is a statement that they believe Trump is a danger to the public, uh, that he could incite further violence on his Twitter account. You can see it's not just Twitter also, everything from Twitch to YouTube, uh, even Shopify, which I find really interesting because it's an e-commerce site. And uh, the Trump campaign can no longer sell products on that e-commerce site. So this is hitting President Trump in his wallet. But it's bigger than Trump. It's also about extremists who are acting in his name, trying to organize further protests that could turn violent. And these platforms want nothing to do with it. And Parler, of course, Parler overnight stripped of its web servers by Amazon. Uh, Now Parler essentially is invisible on the Internet. It's off the Internet. And that's making some fans, some Trump fans, well, even angrier, Julia. 
Yeah, but you raise the perfect point here, Brian, which is that it's so much bigger than President Trump. Effectively, what these social media platforms have done is is cultivate echo chambers of misinformation for profit. And the rumor is that President Trump might say something against some of these tech companies today. The question is, has what we've seen in the last week been enough of a catalyst for Congress to go, Okay, we actually have to act to tackle some form of misinformation and the belief that Mm. for many of these people, they thought what they were reading and seeing was the truth. We have to separate fact from fiction. Yeah, this is all because of a big lie. It is lies that led up to the riot. It was online radicalization that led up to a real-life attack at the Capitol that could have very well turned into a massacre. And I think as the days go on and we see more and more videos of this attack, it becomes more clear how severe and how violent this really was. Uh, These lawmakers lived it. They are victims. Uh, And, you know, would I wager a guess on whether they will take action against big tech? Uh, I'm I'm wary of saying that because of the track record of these uh, legislators. However, I do think this has been a wake-up call all over the place, uh, including inside technology companies. You know, look at how Twitter employees were pressuring the CEO to ban Trump. You know, there's a lot of pressure internally being applied as well as pressure being applied externally right now. Tech's too big to tackle. Is that what we're saying, Brian? I think I am. I think you said it for me. I think I was trying to. No, I'm with you. Unfortunately, I'm with you. They have to show more metal. Congress has to show more metal. Brian Stelter. Thank you so much for that. Thanks. And some of the biggest American companies also taking action. JP Morgan Citigroup is suspending all political donations after the Capitol riots. Meanwhile, Marriott and Blue Cross Blue Shield are halting donations to Republicans who voted against certifying Joe Biden's election victory. Christine Romans joins us now with more business backing away, Christine, finally recognizing that they have to put their money where their mouths and their views are on what their customers feel, too. This is the final good and true breakup, I think, of business with its uh, business president, right? I mean, in the very beginning, there was optimism um, that they were going to be able to get, uh, you know, some policies that they'd really enjoy, like tax cuts. They loved the tax cuts corporate America did. They didn't love the president's tariffs. They didn't love his tone. And now some of these companies with pretty sharp words are backing away from Republican lawmakers in particular. Blue Cross Blue Shield in its statement saying um, that they will suspend contributions to those lawmakers who voted to, quote, undermine our democracy. So one after another, companies are coming out uh, with their statements for how they're going to handle this. And I can tell you, companies you haven't heard from yet, their executive teams are huddled together trying to decide what is the appropriate response for these companies, not only for their customers, but their employees who are very, very concerned about the kind of America that their companies are doing business in uh, at the moment. So a really remarkable turn of events, I think, here. In the very early going four years ago, corporate America was hopeful that this president's deregulation tax cuts would be would be good for their business. But overall, it's tone and the actions of Republican lawmakers and the president in the end that have caused a well and true breakup of corporate America and this administration. Yeah, it's early days. And uh, the skeptic in me, Christine, says it's early days in terms of elections as well, whether it's the midterms or, or 2024. And business isn't half pragmatic in a moment. It reacts very quickly and then suddenly it forgets what it needs to do or should be doing when business interests actually require them to uh, give money in certain places in order to get the action that they they want. How sustainable do we think these restrictions are? Because you can't separate politics from money in the United States. In order to win elections of any form, you've got to have financial backing. 
so far, it's either a quarter or six months is what I'm seeing most of these companies are committing to. And some of them uh, are committing to no political action committee uh, uh, contributions at all for the next six months to let the new administration take hold and to try to let the temperature cool uh, in this country. But you're absolutely right. There is always pressure uh, from corporate America and from from Washington. They, these two money and politics, money is the is, <laughs> is the oxygen um, in, in American politics. I do think there's something else at play here, the Lincoln Project, which you've probably heard of, and others mm. who are going to be, and they have said so, they will be shaming companies who are putting money toward uh, Congress members who they think are trying to undermine democracy. So I think you're going to start to see, um, you're going to see the temperature rise in terms of, of the PR pressure on some of these companies who are giving money to some of these lawmakers who, who voted not to certify a fair election in the United States. And, and, and many of these companies see that as just undermining democracy. By the way, rule of law and democracy is why this is such a great place to do business, right? That's what makes America, America. So uh, that is, that's concerning to these companies. So many great quotes in there. Money is the oxygen in U.S. politics. So Christine Rimmels, I think you take the quote (laughs) of the show. Yeah, Christine, great to have you with us as always. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. As coronavirus surges across Europe, England's chief medical officer says the UK is at the, quote, worst point of the entire pandemic, with the numbers of people sick higher now than during the previous peak. And over in Germany, tighter restrictions took effect today and will be in place at least until January 31st. China's Hebei province has finished testing around 17 million people for coronavirus. It began on Wednesday after two cities reported 82 locally transmitted cases, the biggest outbreak in mainland China for months. The provincial capital was also put on lockdown. Rescue services in Indonesia say they've recovered the black boxes from a passenger jet that went down on Saturday and have obtained communications data. 62 people were on board when the Boeing 737 crashed. Search operations are continuing around the clock. All right, coming up here on First Move, how will a second Trump impeachment be received around the world? A former U.S. ambassador to China weighs in, plus paying the price for insurrection. Should social media throw its hands up for its role in building extremist groups and online activity? That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move Live from New York, where it's looking like a soft open on Wall Street, a pullback from the record highs we saw last week. Wall Street, of course, watching the unprecedented political developments in Washington, D.C., continuing to unfold. Not the only story, though. U.S. health officials also warning that January is on track to be the deadliest month in the COVID crisis yet. In addition to that, U.S.-China relations remain an additional overhang. The Trump administration announcing that it will lift decades-old restrictions that have limited contacts between the United States and Taiwanese officials. At the same time, the New York Stock Exchange moved to delist three telecom firms that the administration says have ties to the Chinese military. That taking effect today, too. 
back in Washington and U.S. Democratic lawmakers working to prevent President Trump from holding office in the future. Former Democratic Senator from Montana, Max Baucus, joins us now. He's also a former U.S. ambassador to China. Ambassador Baucus, fantastic to have you on the show. I did originally want to speak to you about China, about Taiwan, but I, I do feel like we have to begin by discussing what we're seeing in, in Washington, D.C. at this moment. What do you see as the best action for Congress to take with regards to what happened last week and the actions of the president? We have a new president that's going to be sworn in on January 20th. And I, I think the, that should be the primary focus. Uh, Joe Biden's going to have a huge challenge as the new president, whether it's a domestic a coronavirus, um, the uh, riots that occurred in the D.C. Capitol, or a foreign policy overseas, whether it's Iran and most especially China. I, I think that the lawmakers should essentially figure out, OK, uh, Trump's uh, should be uh, reprimanded maybe censured, uh, maybe some other action taken against him. The, the main point is not let it distract uh, President Biden, President-elect Biden, when he becomes president, uh, do his job. Now, President uh, Trump is going to be uh, 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 is going to be sanctioned in many ways. First of all, the New York um, judicial system will work its will, and I'm quite certain it'll bring actions, criminal actions, against uh, Donald Trump. In addition, there are probably a lot of other of actions will be taken against him because of his tax returns or business dealings overseas. We just don't know. Donald Trump is going to be um, brought to justice. There's no question about it. But I don't want it to get in the way of, of, of Joe Biden beginning his presidency. Ambassador, can I read between the lines and say you're convinced then that President Trump will never hold public office again because outside of what we've seen in the past week and the potential uh, vote on impeachment, his other issues will come back to haunt him between now and 2024. That's correct. Um, there's so much out there um, that's going to come out and not only haunt him, but uh, if not put him in jail. It's going to certainly um, result in, in convictions. And, maybe, and civil actions will also be brought against him. Don't forget, too, there are other Republicans that are going to be running for office in 2022 and 2024. And they, some of them may pick up the mantle of some of the disaffected uh, members of the U.S. public. There's a huge split in the United States today between those, I call them the haves and the have-nots. Uh, Donald Trump clearly appealing to the have-nots. But others might also pick up that mantle. I think the days of Donald Trump are going to wind down very quickly. He should be brought to justice. But this is there's not enough time yet, I don't think, to impeach him or convict him, certainly, because it's, Congress doesn't come back to this session until the 19th. I, I also don't think that the, the 25th Amendment will be invoked. Um, there's just not enough members of the cabinet who will invoke it. So he, 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 he will probably have to uh, face justice later on down the road. Hopefully it's censured, but probably not much after that. Not much other than that before the 19th. It's quite interesting because many of the concerns that you hear among Republicans is uh, the Republican Party itself may have the establishment, but Donald Trump has the voters and he has supporters and he had, what, more than 90 million followers on Twitter. Admittedly, that's now been been locked down. Are you saying that you expect the support, even the base support that President Trump has enjoyed for the last several years will quickly dissipate? I think much of it will dissipate. I think that uh, storming the Capitol was a very sobering moment 
for a lot of Republicans, including a lot of Republicans in, in the hinterland or not, in the coast, not the coastal elite Republicans uh, who care about America. They're very patriotic. And I think the storm in the Capitol was a, was a, was a wake-up call for, for some of them, not all of them, but for some of them. After that, Trump will not be in office. He will not have the bully pulpit. The media will not be focusing on him every day. Uh, 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 President Biden will have the bully pulpit. He'll have the focus of the media. So I do think that uh, that uh, more quickly than we think, Donald Trump's stature is going to fall. I want to move on, uh, Ambassador Barkas, and talk to you about Taiwan. What do you make of the decision, the announcement by uh, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to uh, reduce or lift restrictions on relations with Taiwan over the weekend? I, I think that um, um, it's, it's it's somewhat risky. I think that um, uh, the new president, Joe Biden, will, will take a very solid, a sober approach toward Taiwan. And the usual approach in the last several years will probably be continued. Uh, that is a, a, a strategic ambiguity. Um, I think it's unwise for either China to provoke um, an unnecessary agitation, and it's unwise for the United States to, to invoke it. Um, this is, this is, Taiwan's an issue that's going to be around for a long time. And I just think that both sides have to manage it in a long way of, of stability and let's just find a, a better way to do with this rather than agitating, uh, irresponsible, agitating, if not insurrection, agitating uh, a, a, a Taiwan issue to the point where it's going to cause a problem. I mean, this is the challenge now for Joe Biden, and perhaps that's what the administration wanted if if. Uh President-elect Joe Biden walks back on some of this as far as Taiwan is concerned, or some of the restrictions or the tariffs, he's going to be accused of being soft on China. How does Joe Biden handle China going forward? And can we say already he will be softer than President Trump on China? Well, I think your earlier analysis is correct. That is, uh, I think to some degree, the Trump administration and some Republicans, including uh, Secretary Pompeo, are trying to put uh, Joe Biden in a box, make things more difficult for him. They're being political. That's part of the action, reason for their actions. Add to that, I, I think that Joe Biden, Joe Biden will not be more uh, soft on China. He will not be. Uh, he will not let the United States be played uh, by China. He's, he's a very smart man. He's been in public service a long time. Um, and add to that, there's a very strong bipartisan feeling in Washington. Mm. Republicans and Democrats said, hey, we got to do something about China. Now, having said that, I think Joe Biden knows that um, not only is China not going anywhere, that China is very tough, but we have to come up with a policy where China gets the respect of the United States. And where China says, okay, we realize we can't play the United States. We realize that we can't take advantage of the United States. That's Joe Biden's main goal. Make sure that China respects the United States. It's a fine line to walk. Wow, he's going to be busy. Ambassador, great to have you on the show. Thank you for your wisdom. (laughs) Ambassador Walker's there, former U.S. Senator and Ambassador to China. So thank you once again. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. (laughs) 
Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on the first trading day of the week, and we are losing some ground as expected, pulling back from record highs. Investors have mostly ignored the political battles in Washington, focusing instead on some of the good news and the prospects for further rounds of stimulus. President-elect Biden will call for trillions of dollars worth of new aid later this week. J.P. Morgan believes the Congress will approve a $900 billion package in the months ahead. More spending ultimately, though, is going to lead to more borrowing, and that could further boost U.S. Treasury yields. Yields on 10-year Treasuries are pushing further above 1%. That's their highest rate, in fact, since the spring lockdowns last year. High yields, though, welcome news for banks, which have rallied sharply in the new year. Their profits get a boost from higher rates. Financials kicking off Q4 earnings season later on this week. Elsewhere, Bitcoin pulling back from record highs, yet still up. Get this, some 30% so far just this year alone. Take a look at Twitter shares, too, sharply lower after its decision to pull President Trump's account. That's a permanent suspension. That, of course, hits the business model. Less eyeballs around. Plenty to discuss. Julian Emanuel joins us now. He's chief equity and derivatives strategist at BTIG. Julian, great to have you with us. Happier New Year. January 11th, I think there's one thing that we can promise investors this year, and it follows on from what we saw in 2020, and that's volatility. The question is, does it allow markets to continue to rally here, or do you expect some kind of pause? So in the medium term, looking out towards the end of the year, we do believe that markets can and will, as they did in 2020, rally in an environment of higher volatility. Um, But if you step back and you look at where we are now, uh, in our view, it almost would be healthy in a way for markets to pause. Because when you think about last week, uh, I think it's it's pretty safe to say that you're entering a more speculative phase of this market rally uh, because the reaction to obviously the first thing being Wednesday's extremely tragic events in the Capitol combined with the surge in the virus and, uh, you know, w- admittedly very poor employment numbers on Friday and the market's ability not only to to shake it off, but really to almost, you know, just rally very strongly in the face of it tells you that we're in in a new phase, a phase that's likely to be more volatile. Um, but yet again, as we see this morning, it's, it's less a reaction to the change in the news flow and more a reaction to thinking that Bitcoin, certain speculative stocks, et cetera, have perhaps moved too far too fast. Oh, we're going to come back to Bitcoin because I want to get your views on that. But I think, and you mentioned it, what we saw on Wednesday last week overshadowed the Georgia runoff elections, which leave the U.S. Senate this year very shortly with a 50-50 split broken by a Democratic vice president. I look at your notes and you're kind of cherry picking. You see that that paves the way to more stimulus, which is hopeful news, I think, for the, for the economy. But you rule out the likelihood of tax rises. Why do we get all the good and perhaps none of the bad as investors? Well, well, so so from our point of view, 50-50. And then if you look at the House of Representatives, um, you know, the 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 majority of the Democrats shrunk uh, past this election. And you have a, a, an admittedly centrist president coming into office, uh, Joe Biden, is that basically when you put that all together, we think priorities, call it one through 10, for the incoming Biden administration are to uh, tackle the virus, 
from a public health perspective and then tackle the virus from an economic perspective. And, you know, that really, in our view, decreases the likelihood of new of new taxes in 2021, particularly since some of the swing votes uh, on both the Democrat and the Republican side in the Senate, which we're now finding, aren't necessarily going to be comfortable uh, with a higher tax regime. Now, the other part of this is while we do expect more stimulus, uh, where the market is and where it's uh, come from really indicate that, uh, you know, it's almost a done deal. And I would say that that kind of assumption, these things are never done deals in Washington, <laughs> which, again, uh, points to our caution in the near term. I mean, cash positions are low. Valuations are the highest they've been since, what, the 2000 era. The short term challenges are vast if we look at the COVID crisis. When you look across assets and not just stocks, and you mentioned Bitcoin earlier, there's a feel that things are ripe for, for pullback, ripe for correction at least short term. No question about it. And, and you know, we, uh, we we just look at we launched the BTIG uh, coverage of digital assets right around Thanksgiving. And uh, that was essentially when Bitcoin was trading at 18,000. Um, and we at that time put out a year end 2021 price target of 50,000 for Bitcoin. And we got a lot of eyebrows raised at that time as being overly aggressive. And we look back to the last week or two, some of those same eyebrows are now questioning whether we weren't aggressive enough, uh, being that Bitcoin traded uh, above 41,000 over the weekend. And generally what we find is that markets can carry to extremes in, in both directions and volatility works both to the upside and to the downside, whether it's Bitcoin or equities. So from our point of view, that it's just it's more a a sentiment readjustment, given the fact that a very optimistic scenario in aggregate is priced across all assets. And you see that with the rise of yields, which should in of itself be something that limits the action in these other assets. And that's what Mm -hmm. we're seeing this morning. Yeah, that's a great point. To yours, though, Julian, you are a great predictor of where things are going. You you win awards for it. Are you ready to change that 50,000 year end target for Bitcoin? No, not at all. And and if if you look at at Bitcoin volatility, this type of pullback is very, very um, expected. And, And from our point of view, again, regardless of the near term volatility, the the fundamental rationales behind a move to digital assets, some of which are an environment really one of the biggest, uh, where yields really have no room to to move further on the downside. The Fed has told you it's not going to allow negative uh, of interest rates. And by the same token, essentially, we have a lot of deficit spending we're going to have to fund in the in the months and years ahead, which is causing the long end of yields to rise. Those are reasons to move into, you know, not just Bitcoin, but to move into international stocks, commodities and so on. It's a broader asset diversification in what we believe is ultimately going to be a positive year for risk assets. But you just need a strong stomach, basically. So we've gone full circle on this conversation. Well, look, the good news is 
is if you stuck with your investment thesis last year, you know, we don't think you're going to need quite as strong a stomach as 2020, but you're still going to need resoluteness. Fantastic to chat to you. Julian Emanuel, the Chief Equity and Derivatives Strategist at BTIG. Great to have you with us. All right, so after the break, how America's polarized society got to this point. We're looking inside the social media silos built by Facebook's and others' own algorithms. That's next. Welcome back to the show. President Trump facing social media silence. He's been cut off at every turn after being banned on Facebook, Twitter, and even the conservative censorship-free app Parler has been taken offline. It's left many of us around the world asking how America got to this point. My next guest says social media played a big hand in last week's violence in Washington, D.C., because their algorithms encourage users to consume more content agreeable with their own views. Roger McNamee joins us now. He's co-founder at the private equity firm Elevation Partners. He's also a former advisor to Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, and he's also the author of Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. And he's been on the show many times. Roger, fantastic to have you with us once again. I saw you quoted elsewhere as saying that taking Trump off platforms like Twitter was an act of desperation on their part. Explain what you mean by that and what you make of what we've seen. So, Julia, you and I have talked now for a couple of years about the the challenge that the country faced in managing the impact of social media having become dominant in our national conversation. And fundamentally, what was going on was that the business interests of Internet platforms, which have to do with attention and getting people emotionally engaged, were essentially creating a threat to public health by undermining the pandemic, to democracy by essentially allowing people like Trump to attack our core democratic values and our processes, as well as the usual issues on privacy and competition. The context has now completely shifted. Last Wednesday, the president gave a speech which had come after two months of promising his, uh, his voters that the election was in fact falsely decided and therefore they needed to take back the country. That led to incitement of an insurrection where five people died at the Capitol. And if you think about the responsibilities of an elected official, you know, it's hard to imagine a crime worse than incitement of insurrection against another branch of government. And so I think from the point of view of internet platforms, suddenly there's no ambiguity. They have been accessories to all of this, accessories to all of Trump's outrageous behavior, that he kept moving the goalposts. And we got, like a frog in water coming to a boil, we got acclimated to it. And so we normalized all that behavior. But once you got to last Wednesday, I think it became obvious to just about everybody in power that, whoops, this is going way too far. And there is real legal jeopardy. And I think the reason why everything's been shut down is great fear that there's more coming, that there were other plots being hatched on social media, and they wouldn't have any deniability. They wouldn't have any way to say they didn't know. I mean, this is the business model, Roger. The more extreme the views, the more eyeballs, the more eyeballs you have on your social media platform, the more advertisers want to spend with you. And it's not just big advertisers, it's small businesses. And we've found that the, the business model itself until this moment has been bulletproof. And it probably still will be after this because particularly for small businesses they need it 
what happens here? Because you wrote an op-ed for, for Wired and you pointed out a statistic from Facebook's own research, which says two thirds, basically, of people that join these extreme groups did so because the algorithm itself within a platform on Facebook said, hey, you should perhaps join this group. And they did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. The business model at small scale didn't cause any problems. But as it became nation scale, as, you know, Facebook became, you know, something bigger than China or bigger than all of Christianity, you know, the impact could be felt everywhere and countries were destabilized. But Julia, I want to make a really important point here. There are ways to serve the needs of advertisers and the needs of small business that do not destroy public health or hmm. democracy. And I think the debate we're going to have right now is how we're going to get there. With respect to Parler, the decision's been made, we're just gonna get rid of that. And the question I think that Facebook and Twitter and others face is, you know, the range of potential outcomes now includes being shut down. And that debate I think is going to require them to be a lot more transparent, a lot more honest about how they are going to address these problems. I commend them this week for what they did, Facebook for uh, pausing Trump, but especially Twitter for shutting him down. At the end of the day though, you know there are real questions about whether the business model as currently practiced is compatible with democracy and whether it's compatible with public health. I mean, you know, President Biden coming in, he has got to, well, I is don't know, Roger? right now I would say no. Today, it isn't. no. And I agree. No, I think it has to be. I think it has to be changed. And the debate that we're going to have, President Biden's got to solve the pandemic. And you cannot have the world drowning in disinformation. And you can't have internet platforms profiting from that disinformation and from all of these scams that are taking place trying to offer alternatives. All of that stuff is rampant on YouTube on Facebook, on Instagram, and it's got to stop. And I just don't think the companies until this past week showed any awareness of any civic responsibility. And YouTube still hasn't shown any at all. I mean, barely any. And it's really, in my mind, it's, it's past time. And I'm really hopeful that we can have good conversations now and get to it. And I think investors have to be part of that. We have to recognize that we've got to live somewhere. And, you know, at the end of the day, there will be other opportunities in tech you know, in fact, I think if you use antitrust to create the opportunity, there will be something much better than what we have today. That's always been the case in the past. But, you know, we'll have to see. But even our current antitrust laws can't cope with the tech giants that have been created over the last few years. Um, there was so much. May, in I there. Say, may I say one more? Yeah. May I say one more word about that? Yeah. I actually think that you're correct that they won't get it all, but they don't need to. I think what something. antitrust can absolutely do is create an environment where alternatives can start. And then we can have safety regulations and privacy regulations that take care of the rest. I agree. And actually, I was going to get to that point. You want to see more on safety, privacy and competition. And your point was, look, it's not enough yeah. just to break them up. We need to foster competition to give some alternative here that, yeah. that operates better. Very quickly, Roger, because I have 30 seconds. Even if Congress can do something, do you think the share prices of Twitter, of Facebook, of Alphabet, the uh, owner of Google, are impacted negatively or do you think they end up higher? I think they have to be impacted for a period of time because we don't, there's a great deal of uncertainty and unless they cooperate, the stocks 
are going to be subject to massive regulation. But I do think over the long run, these companies are incredibly well positioned. And history is that antitrust law, at least, you know, while it can be a short term negative, it's in the long run, even a positive for the target. Yeah, I called them too big to tackle earlier. We'll reconvene on this conversation. <laughs> Roger McNamee, always Look a pleasure to, to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you. Co-founder at Elevation Partners there. All right, you're watching First Move. More to come. first move, whether it's the pandemic or issues around climate change, there are major reasons why sustainability is at the forefront of people's minds. It's something one man in Dubai is taking on in a very personal way as he challenges himself to create a local circular economy for food. As Anna Stewart explains. The food that landscape architect Phil Dunn cooks is more than just a meal. It's a personal challenge that's giving a glimpse of how people could consume food in cities around the world. I chose this challenge to eat only food that's grown in the sustainable city for 365 days. To achieve his goal, Dunn is relying on his local community. Based in a Dubai neighborhood called the Sustainable City, he's growing his own vegetables in urban gardens bartering rather than buying vital non-local goods like sugar and olive oil with other residents and catching fish at the community's tank. I had cherry tomatoes, chives, uh, leafy lettuces, uh, as many greens as I could eat really, so that's what my diet consists of. He's creating a small-scale example of circular economy for food, where everything is produced, consumed and recycled locally. This project could pave the way for more sustainable initiatives around the world. So the next big idea is really to live, work and thrive locally. So we have rooftops, we have basements, we have recreational areas, we have public gardens, and then we can repurpose shipping containers to produce berries and strawberries and, and tomatoes. With an increasing awareness on sustainability, circular economies are growing in popularity in cities projected to yield up to $4.5 trillion in economic growth globally by 2030, according to Accenture. Following Dunn's concept, Dubai's sustainable city is pursuing technologies that help forge a circular path. We've seen a, a quantum leap in indoor vertical farming. Vertical, because I want to now use the space vertically as opposed to horizontally. That's why it is so fitting to do it in a city. Dunn believes living locally is achievable and hopes that more people will follow suit. I hope that this project is a catalyst for other individuals to start to take control of where their food is grown. A personal challenge that could also benefit food sustainability and security. Dunn is opening new horizons for the circular economy in cities. Anna Stewart, CNN. All right, and that just about wraps up the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. Thank you for watching. Stay safe, and we'll see you tomorrow.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.